So the single most amazing fact in biology, and perhaps all of science, is that 3.8 billion years ago, life began on this planet once. And everything since then has been an expression, a differentiation from that first beginning. It happened once. Until I read that, I thought it had happened all over the world in different swamps and mud puddles and and it sort of all came together at different times, but it happened once. Now that's interesting to me because the differentiation that occurred from that single beginning adapted according to what it needed and specified as it moved throughout the different areas of the world. And so it developed what it needed to survive and master that particular puddle that it was in. And the differentiation then grew and grew so that now we are very different than other species and other plants. But the fact is, the fact is that we share 98% of the gene pool of a chimpanzee and 50% of the gene pool of grass. So what happened? You see the spirit of this? That we have much more in common than difference. And yet what we, where we focus, where we invest, is in the differences. Meta and it has many uses, but one of its uses is to bring us through differentiation. We start with slight differences and move to vast differences, emotionally vast differences with people. But trying to recover the love of the similarity. Because life, life, that which has been covered in appearances, loves itself. In fact, that's the only redeeming quality in all of spirituality is that it comes back to seek itself out from ignorance, from harm, from pain. But it's so interesting that much of Dharma has to do with divesting ourselves from appearance so we can regain the foothold in the familiar within the similar. But the problem is we're up against 3.8 billion years of history. That's a lot of conditioning. And we turned on each other, you know, the fish. The big fish turned on the small fish. (laughs) The lion came at us sometime. Now we're coming at each other, aren't we? And as we begin to see and divest ourselves from appearance, from that which is dissimilar, we get very quiet because we need a lot of noise to remind us of our differentiation, of our identity, of what's different from me than you. And I have to keep a lot of judgment going in order to maintain that distinction. And so my mind works overtime. And it can't be quiet because in quiet there's no differentiation. We come back to 3.8 billion years ago. But the momentum of having convinced ourselves that we are so problematic, we like being problematic. We like being dramatic because it gives us purpose, it gives us resolve, it gives us intention, it gives us meaning. The more dramatic and 
drama-filled our life is, the more the noble sense of me has to work ourselves out of this misery. When all we have to do is be quiet. And that's what's happened in these last two days. Is happening in these last two days. And that's why the retreat suddenly, for many people, becomes a little easier as we get quieter. We're not stoning ourselves. We're not as prominent, are we? We're not as arrogant. Because we've all seen the problem of our life up close for two days, very dramatically, face to face. It takes away some of that arrogance when you see yourself up close in the picture, in the mirror. You get very humble when you look at your mind. And you also begin to see the similarities we all have within the mind, those of the species that have minds like ours. And that common shared problem is then not the differences within that shared problem, but the common fact that we all have the same problems begins to build, destroy the boundaries of the judgments of our prominence, of our self-importance. And suddenly our heart opens and we feel the tremendous joy of heart opening, shared heart space, kindness, caring, not fictitious or pretentious caring, not forceful or effortful caring, have nothing to do with that. If it's not here, it's not worth having. But we've missed that it's here because we keep getting lost in the differences and the judgment and the differences rather than seeing what we have in common. And the only way we can see what we have in common is to be quiet. Because that's the one thing all things have in common. And then love knows itself. How can it not? You see, we can use this path this meditation for further differentiation, which many of us are prone to do, to become something more from our meditation. I run a beginning class series, and at the first class of that series, I ask people what they came for, what their expectation is, and every one of them, in some way or other, state some form of further differentiation. I want to be quieter, I want to be calmer, I want to be more tranquil, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be. And so we get caught up in this practice as being a way to specialize the difference, to add something more to the burden of what we have, but to try to quiet or to sandpaper it off a little bit, to give us something that can give us some resources so that we can deal with that, some quietude, some, something, something, something. And we don't see it, that we have any access to it, so we get caught up in this sense of cultivation. And may I say, it is one of the most tragic points in our lineage, the emphasis on cultivation, the emphasis on endless lifetimes. And the reason it's tragic is because our doubt loves it. When we, though in the West, have a very strong sense of unworthiness within us, it's almost universal. 
And so we love that which we have to work towards to better ourselves because none of us believe that we're worth having it now. So if we can be on the journey of progression, we feel as if we're finally reach some kind of nobility, as far off in the future as it might be, someday, some lifetime, we'll reach the nobility and be able to stop and be able to claim our rightful prize, our rightful birthright of stillness. And it never happens. That's the secret. You never get there because you will have never arrived, because the sense of doubt will never have been seen. It will keep driving the more is better. Enough of that. Enough. Stop now. It's here or it's never. It's now, literally, or never. And as soon as we have developed the confidence to stand still, to make that assertion, that's it. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of the endless journey towards nowhere. We'd be very quiet then because we have nothing, no noise to lean on, no further differentiation to call forth, no sense of particularization, of distinction any longer. And then we are reborn. We have transversed 3.8 billion years in an instant. And life knows itself again. And that's the Buddhist path to move from differentiation to union. That's it. That's all it's about. All the 550 suttas. He said he taught only one thing. Returning to 3.8 billion years ago. (laughs) But we make it so hard. We make it hard because we believe we need to have something hard. We believe, some of us feel like we need to do penance because our life has been so unforgiving. We've been so unforgiving to our life. We feel like we have to do some kind of penance to get to do this. And psychology, what's it called when it... uh, when you have to, the harder you work towards something, the more you value the prize, the goal of how, what you're working towards. Anyway, I can't remember what it's called, but we make spiritual journeys such a, um, such a uh, high, noble affair that we feel we are not deserving of it unless we work very, very hard. So we do. And because we're driven by our doubt, we continue to have to work hard. We haven't worked hard enough. That's really interesting. I I had a teacher one time that no matter what I did, when I report to the person I did it daily, he would tell me to work harder. And I thought I was working as hard as I could, but then inside I said, oh, I could work harder. 
you know, I can work harder. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If we're going to come back, if we're going to come back and if we're going to use this path in the right direction, if we're going to be in alignment with the real teaching, we have to understand what the real teaching is. We have to understand where the Buddha is pointing and how the sense of me, the sense of self-differentiation, when I talk about me, the sense of me, I'm talking about the differentiation. What makes me different than you, special from that. And so many of us work in conjunction with the, uh, the way the distinction creates itself. We work hard, we're effortful, we're ambition, we're trying to look toward goal-oriented, we have aspirations, and we just we bring our worldly view into our spiritual one and try to move the whole thing forward from that viewpoint. And what we, happens is that we get further differentiated within our spiritual work, and that's not what it's about. And the various strategies of differentiation, trying to overcome something, trying to wait it, trying to, you know, power ourselves through all the different ways that we work with something further, creates further further differences. (laughs) When all we have to do is be quiet. Feel it. See how close it is. Hundred thousand lifetimes. You cross the gap. Why? See, what happens is that we have a feeling of doubt or discouragement or a sense of inadequacy or inward poverty or some sense of self-diminishment. We have that feeling, and then we assume the truth of that feeling. And once we assume the truth of that feeling, we have thoughts that accompany that truth. I've got to, in order to get out of this, I've got to try to, I must... And so then we work in accordance with the truth of that assumption, and the assumption is based upon nothing. Instead of, that's it, I'm not moving from doubt. That's, I don't care. Boredom, I don't care. Absolutely standing firm, terra firma. This is it. This is where I stand. All is said in that simple gesture of the Buddha as he touches the earth. This is where I am. I don't care what comes. Come what may. Come on. I'm not moving. With that conviction, with that ferocity, with that love, nothing can withstand us. Nothing can make you move. And the stillness is everlasting. So how do we work in accordance with the teaching rather than in discordance with the truth? We have to be very careful because the sense of self loves a project to overcome. And there's no greater project than me, to overcome me. It really gets into that. 
because in its very duties to undermine self, it's fulfilling its duties to aggrandize itself. So how is it? Because there's something. We have to do something. Can't just go out in the streets and wander. (laughs) If we're going to do something then, let's line it up. So we're in accordance. We're in accordance with the great stillness that is. So I have four R's. Reading, writing, arithmetic. (laughs) Other R's. And I'd like to talk about those four R's tonight. And just as as we listen, listen to how these R's work in accordance with the theme of wise view in the right direction, in the right orientation. Not 100,000 lifetimes. You won't hear that from me. If you're ready now, step forward. Let's do it. Let's go. The first R we've spoken a great deal about, but I want to reinforce it, and that's the R of relaxation. Relaxation is not a doing. Notice that these R's do not hold some kind of resistance or contest for you. They're not a further form of contraction, which most of our effort is. They're a release. They're a a letting go. That is tension. That is relaxation. Is that a doing or is that a releasing of the doing? Relaxation is amazing because nothing can be seen, nothing can be understood when we are resisting and tension-filled and mistrusting of life. When we're so tight, often through our own efforts, it holds a disadvantaged relationship to insight, to awareness, because we're in in an embittered struggle with something. We're not even interested in seeing it. We're interested in overcoming or in defending And when we're interested in defending, we're not interested in what we're defending or to even see what we're defending. We've already assumed the truth of that as being harmful. But relaxation opens the field, opens it all up. Everything is accessible in relaxation. I teach a teen class. I get a lot of inspiration from the teens. So there was a 15-year-old, and we were talking about relaxation. And the assignment I give them is to go home and practice what we have talked about. So this young 15-year-old comes back the next week and tells us the story. She said she was gathered around the dining room table or someplace in the house and she find the the rhetoric of the family started to move towards its usual crisis point and everybody was fulfilling their roles within that turmoil and uh, she saw her own voice being added to everyone else's voice and that all started to develop out of control chaos and she remembered the assignment and she sat back down on her chair, and she said, I don't have to do, I don't have to do this. I'm just going to relax in this. And it 
diffused the whole situation for all. It's like the air came out of the balloon. And she came back very proud of herself. And I said, you should be. She said she understood how everybody fed on each other and that if she were to change her role and just relax, that they couldn't maintain their roles without her effort. So relaxation moves us in, the, in a counter way to our conditioning. Our conditioning is towards struggle. It's towards defense and creating further distance. And so our natural tendency is to take arms against And relaxation does just the other thing. It releases the boundary. It releases the need to pick up the arms. And so it goes counter to our conditioning. Whatever goes counter to our conditioning is moving towards non-differentiation. You may not understand that, but when you relax, you'll start seeing it. You'll feel more spacious. You'll feel less contained, less contracted. And it feels good. So we want to learn how to relax, except we won't allow ourselves to relax because the sense of me requires a differentiation to know who and what we are, to know your name, place, serial number. So even though we want, our heart yearns for the spaciousness and quietude and tranquility of relaxation, it won't allow itself to be fully relaxed because we start getting fuzzy, not clear, about who we are and what our purpose is in life and our self-empowerment and our boundaries and all of the different things that many of us need to firm up in order to release. Relax. What's he telling me? Is this some kind of, should I trust relaxation? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't. (laughs) Through relaxation, we can see that things are safe and harmless. When we relax with something, with our emotion, when an emotion arises to relax with it rather than to be on edge with it, it's through our willingness to relax to it that we see that it has, it's essentially has the same nature as all things have. None. And we can let each thing be just what it is. And But most of us have to go through the circuit, circuits of the mind in order to prove to ourselves there's nothing back there, hidden and latent, that's going to leap out at us when we relax. What if I let go and suddenly this thing comes out, what I fear most about me? I used to have that. I thought, oh... In my deepest unconscious comes the id, and the id. <laughs> I've got to have a little bit of residue tension back in there just to keep it tucked in, right? <laughs> Nonsense. What's going to come out? An image? An emotion? A memory? What's going to come out? What could possibly come out? It all has the same, it's nothing. It's nothing. And the more we see that, the more we are willing to allow ourselves to relax and the more relaxation takes on its own momentum. We relax our way to freedom. Isn't that amazing? 
that it really requires nothing from you. So the second R, I have to find them on the sheet here because I can never remember what what they are. (laughs) I make them up. (laughs) Release is the second R. We release the need to control the outcome. Release. That, see, each one is really the same thing, but pokes us in a different place. So now we're talking about releasing our need to control. Oh, wait a second here. Relaxation was fine, but that one's a little... Because most of us are very tied into our control issues. And so we never come into a situation and release the need to control the outcome. We're often trying to extract the outcome we most desire and to fight our way through view and opinion towards that outcome. And of course that's not relaxation, but it's needed, we think. But here is a situation, a retreat, in which we do not, nothing needs to be controlled. The meal will be out. Your bodily necessities will be met. And look how much control we bring into it. We can't stop it. It's like a faucet that has lost its washer. And it requires a tremendous amount of faith to release release because what's going to what's going to do this if my worry I have to worry or it's not going to turn out all right I have to fret I have to I have to you don't understand that's very nice Rodney but you I live in the world (laughs) and you don't know my daughter is well see we play God before we're ready. Don't we? Because we have, everyone has faith. It's just in the wrong thing. It's in me rather than in all that is. Releasing. And if you want to see what you're up against, if we want to see what we're up against in releasing our control, watch when we're out of control. When you lose your car keys. Right? Or when you don't get your way. And that sense of being completely vulnerable, exposed, disempowered, And how that may be the most, that may be worse than fear. It certainly contains fear. And how the next moment after that is is an anger towards and a blame towards whomever might have had the car keys last until it proves to be our own. Release. As I go through these R's, you might want to take one as your word for the week and just move with it because each one is like a spoke going right to the center of the wheel. I had a friend driving down Interstate Highway, trying to get her small children who were in the back seat, three of them, age five to age 
seven or nine, to school on time and stuck dead stop in traffic. And her kids were acting up in the back seat, yelling at each other and poking. And she was late for an appointment that she needed to do after she dropped her kids off. And it was just like the whole thing was she was completely out of control. And she was just, there was absolutely, it's like being on an air, you know, air travel and you missed your connecting flight. Not, absolutely nothing you can do. You're three hours late, and that's it. And she said, this is all my life will ever be. No, you hear it differently. This is all my life will ever be. Period. I'll never get out of this car. Period. Not as some kind of, oh, I'll never, not as a sorrowful pity, self-pity, but as the absolute truth. You see, let it sink into that. Now it's all workable. Now it's just, okay, that's it. My life is this, this is it. That's it. There's nothing else. There's not another option here. Without options, there are no options. There's no difficulty when there aren't options. No difficulty whatsoever because there's no option. When there are options, that's the difficulty. Even then, when there's not options, we create options. If the plane had just been there on time, no options. Listen carefully. There are no options to any moment. Every moment, every moment is optionless. You can't be thinking a different thought than the one you're thinking. You can't be feeling a different emotion than the one that's arising. There are no options. Give yourself over, as that woman did, to the optionless scenarios. And there are no scenarios. And everything stands up in that moment. The third R. Relax, release, relinquish. Relinquish is letting go of everything that is not authentic and genuine. This one requires a ruthlessness, a gentleness, a gentle ruthlessness. If those words seem like an oxymoron, they're not. Then I'm just not going to create anything fictitious. I want to see what's there, and I want everything that's not authentic Release everything that's not authentic. And we start wherever we start. It doesn't mean we have to go some deep, you know, way, you know, just start where we start. Like when we're in conversation with someone and we're pretending, first lying, and then we're over that pretty quickly, hopefully, and then we try to create character presentations that were not really in order to live up to their expectations. So that's inauthentic. That goes away, and I don't care what's left. Even if the he or she hates me, I'm willing to do that rather than to be inauthentic. So that's the ruthlessness, you see? That's the ruthlessness. That we're going towards the truth regardless of circumstances and regardless of what is the inevitable backlash of seeking the truth. And then we start moving it in to our inward world. And believe me, it gets very interesting when we start seeing the stories we tell ourselves, which have no bearing on truth whatsoever, what we have to relinquish. Every story we tell ourselves is a fabrication. And so we let all that go. I'm not going to live like that. And we just keep taking that word and we start feeling 
the grounded confidence of authenticity. And the heart will never betray itself. It like seeks out any sense. It like is a bloodhound, inauthentic, right there. It doesn't do that with other people. It's not like judging because that's inauthentic. Judgment, you begin to see that judgment is inauthentic because it's based on individual differences and there are none. So you get, we get very sober and very quiet because everything we say in protest is inauthentic. You want to do this? You want to go this way? I don't know. but I do know your heart does. And there's a systematic way of inquiring and looking and questioning. What's going on here? Where's, what's authentic in this moment? And we see we come up against the neurotic qualities we all have not just while we're sitting here and watching ourselves, but in conversation, in interaction. You see where the social anxiety makes us fill in the spaces in order to all of the different. And we, begin, we get very t- on top of that. You see, this is urban Buddhism. This is not retreat Buddhism. It's not exclusive of retreats, but it's much more inclusive than just sitting here. The fourth R. It's my favorite. Rejoin. Rejoin. When we rejoin our hearts, our hearts rejoin. Rejoin. We start anywhere. We don't have to have this kind of, you know, well, that's not deep enough. Just anywhere. Start with your emotional life. Just rejoin it. Anytime we reconnect, we are moving in accordance with oneness. Reconnecting. Relaxing. Releasing, relinquishing, rejoining. They're all verbs. (laughs) (laughs) They're all verbs of reconnection, of interconnection. They take us back 3.8 billion years. They take us back before, you know, before the, before. Rejoining. See, we don't let the betrayal of the organism. After 3.8 billion years, this organ, the mind, has differentiated because it needs to. It needs to know a lion from a tree. And so it's the master of just that, of that way of seeing. And it needs to know that I have to run from you. So I've got it all down. But we have enclosed around that particular organ as the only visible and assured truth there is. And it's the truth of the relic. It's the truth of the survival mechanism adapted from differentiation over this number of billion of years in order to have the organ, the species, survive. I don't begrudge that. I just don't believe it. 
doesn't mean we lose the capacity to know threat from non-threat. But there's another organ here that has always reclaimed itself as the common denominator to all of life rather than the numerator And that's the heart. That's why there's such emphasis on that. Now, the heart is not a, the physical organ. It's awareness. And I just differentiate it from the mind because the awareness isn't held within the mind. It includes its range of, of observation includes the mind, but it's not limited to the mind. It can see beyond the mind, and that's the only reason we have any salvation in this thing. So we can see what the mind is doing, which is what we're training ourselves to do, but not to believe it as the truth of things. So we begin to see this thing. We say, oh, I get it. I understand now. Wait a second. I understand what meditation's about here. I understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. I understand the way I need to go here. And I understand how the road divides and moves in completely opposite directions, doing the same practice. It's what I bring to the practice will determine which road I travel or what I understand the direction the practice takes. So now we're all, see, we're in line. Okay, got it, got it, got it. So once you get it, don't ever, once you know it in your heart, if you're feeling it in your heart, if you're going yes in your side, you're going yes, yep. That, that. You can't be thrown off the horse. Relax, release, relinquish, and rejoin. Rejoin, rejoin. One spiritual teacher said, never leave anything out, never leave anyone out of your heart. Same thing. That's what it means. Rejoin. One person said to me when, after this talk, said, uh, what about all the work I've done to be self-empowered? Are you suggesting I let people use me again? You see, each of us have our own readiness for these words, and I don't know where your readiness is. Some people's readiness are... are we, have, we have to further differentiate before we've come to the place where we can rejoin. And some of us haven't developed enough differentiation, enough boundary separation, enough self-empowerment to feel ourselves being complete in those areas so that we can relinquish those very areas to come back into ourselves. And so much of our practice is about regaining a foothold into our own authenticity, into our own confidence, into our own empowerment, so that we can then turn and meet the path in the way it's supposed and intended to move us. So I'm not taking away your form of intervention or skillful means. But let's know where the highway goes. We may be off on a tributary. But let's know where the highway goes together. I only have one dharma. This is the dharma. I love coming together with all of you and all of us together because it's not about individual progress. It's not about any of that. It's about this. It's about this. It's about Christ standing on the mound and holding his arms out and saying, Thank you.
and we sit for a minute or two. can't rejoin through words. Words create the appearance of things. So we can't solve the riddle, the spiritual riddle, through vocabulary, through knowledge, through certainty, through wording. We have to seek the wonder of stillness, of quiet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.